everyone. I, we always give everyone a few moments to come into the room that have been waiting. We've got two special guests this evening. Uh, two of my favorite authors in this in this uh, regenerative movement space. Um, I've read all their books except for their, their latest one. Haven't had time yet, but I will. Um, so this evening we have Ann Beclay and David Montgomery with us. How are you guys doing this evening? Doing good. Yeah, doing okay, Eric. It's good to good. be here. Good. Thank you for being here. This is an honor. It's a pleasure. I've, I've got to do my normal. I, I This is how I get us going. Giddy up. Let's go. Here we go. All right. Now, we are very fortunate to have two wonderful people on here this evening. I had got the pleasure to meet them in person just yesterday. Uh, we were we were all three at the same conference in Spokane, Washington, and I am still in Spokane and in, in my hotel room. But my goodness, what an event they put on there! The Spokane Conservation District. That was a good thing. What did you guys think of the of the of the conference? It was great. They're a really impressive organization doing good work. Yeah, yeah I was sort of, you never know what to expect when you go to an event, but, and, and this is my home state, you know, so I know something about Spokane. And I, I just didn't really know quite what to expect. And then when I got there, it was really evident to me that the energy in the room and some of the things the speaker said, I was like, wow. Yeah. These folks are uh, kind of at the leading the pack yeah. in some ways. That was, was really good. good. It was good. Well, I'm going to start this like I always do. I'm going to start with Anne. Um, Anne, what, what's on your mind right now? What are you thinking about right now? Yeah. I, I think, um, Rick, I'm still kind of mulling over sort of one of the favorite phrases I heard at that event. Favorite because... Um, I think it's really important. Uh, maybe a new fave because I'm like, wow, you know, something is advancing and progressing if someone like this is saying things like that. And so what I'm referring to is um, you were up there in the front of the room um, yesterday and these folks were in one of those front tables with big cowboy hats on. And uh, they had been speaking earlier and I was kind of floored when Chris, and he's the guy with the last name that has 17 letters, Schick Shocking yeah. or something like that. But yeah. anyway, what he said, what he was talking about was the importance of phytochemicals for the health of cattle and yeah. where those phytochemicals come from. And I just couldn't believe it because that I'm, you know, if I had to choose one or the other, I'm more of a plant person. And of course, phytochemicals come out of plants and that this person was up there talking to that kind of crowd about those things i was just so excited nobody talks about phytochemicals rick nobody <laughs> and so there he was and then this afternoon i had it's you know uh, the other thing on my mind is change of seasons we just got we're getting hit with the spell of cold weather for us here in seattle and i was um enjoying um some black bean soup earlier ah. today and I was thinking about the phrase about the phytochemicals and I'm thinking all these legumes are so underappreciated. We all like to talk about the leafy greens and I'm guilty of that too, but there's phytochemicals in every 
everything that comes off of the plant body, including, you know, mature seeds like a bean. And that got me thinking, you know, I think I need to learn more about the phytochemicals in black beans. So, you know, that's, I put that on my list of things, never ending things to do. Well, then in my opinion, you succeeded what you were supposed to do at a conference. That's learn something and you did. So great job. Great job, David. What what's on what's on your mind? What's running through your your brain box right now? Well, you know, stuff tends to go in one ear and be processed for a moment, and then right out the other. So, right before I uh, logged into the webinar, I was uh, looking at essentially some of the news from about the war in Ukraine. And yeah. you know, as a geomorphologist, you know, somebody studies landscapes and what they look like. Uh, I can't get, you know, I can't shake the image in my mind of what we're doing, or not what we're doing, what people are doing, what Vladimir Putin's doing to some of the best farmland in the world in Ukraine. Yeah. It's yeah. cratered. It looks like it's like Swiss cheese at this point. And, you know, I just can't help but look at that and just, you know, shed a tear for not just for the Ukrainian people, um, but for that we could do that to that kind of land. Um, yeah. It's just, yeah. So, um, but, you know, fortunately, when things go in one ear and right out the other, I'll be on to thinking more about uh, better things as the conversation unfolds. <laughs> there you go. Well, have you been to Ukraine? Have you been there before? I, I No, I have not. Oh, um, I'm, I'm but not either. You know, it's got some of the world's best agricultural land. Uh, so I'm familiar with the geology and the setup for that. It's a lot like the American Midwest or... Um, you know, parts of the parts of China, but it's one of the world's bread baskets um, and we should be using it and treating it as such. Right. Right. Well, you know, I, we can take this conversation tonight in many directions. So we're just going to get I'm just going to jump in and go. Let's um, why do you two work so well together? Give us a quick little background and I'm going to start with you. What you 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 like the plants, right? You're the biology here. So so. Tell us about yourself and why you two work so well together. Yeah, uh, it might be different, you know, if we were both geologists or both biologists or both gardeners. But um, what I think we both bring to sort of this effort around, you know, the stories and books on soil is that we come at it with different perspectives. And so, yeah. you know, Maybe what Dave isn't understanding about the biology or finding so cool about the biology, uh, I will, you know, I'll cover that ground. And then I'm also and always have been a really curious person about how do things actually work? How do they really work? Because I firmly believe that once, once you understand something like that, you can then begin to address problems and issues and be coming up with solutions. And so Dave's definitely got the handle on, you know, the surface of the earth. How is soil made? What are rocks doing? What is their role in all of this? And so we can constantly um, sort of bounce ideas off of one another, exchange information. And it turns out, you know, there was, this was never a plan or anything like that. But it turns out to work pretty well when you're writing, researching, and talking about soil because you can't really pin soil down exactly as, oh, it's 100% living. Oh, it's 100% dead. Oh, it's 100% this or that. It's a really, really great example, soil is, of how 
many different things come into play to create something that is so much more than, you know, the sum of its parts. Yeah. So, you know, it's this, it's this whole other thing by virtue of how it's formed, how we take care of it and what it is we do to it. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's awesome. Dave, what, uh, tell us about a little bit about your background and why do you and Ann work so well together? Yeah, you know, in terms of my background, I, I studied to be a geologist as an undergrad in college, and then I went on to work on landscape evolution, geomorphology, sort of what shapes topography, wow. the surface of the earth. Wow. And, you know, as part of that, it's an interdisciplinary science. You have to learn the geology, you have to learn chemistry, physics, and math, and all that stuff, but you also have to learn some biology and some ecology, um, and, you know, maybe just enough to be dangerous at times, but... Um, I think yeah. one of the reasons that Anne and I work so well together on, particularly on this subject of looking into, you know, what helps to build and maintain the fertility of soils and, and humanity's relationship with the land is that you can think of soil as the interface between biology and geology, the, the dead oh. world of rocks and the living world of life, because it really is that interface. And it's this thin, fragile layer that covers the surface of the planet. We know of no other planet that actually has soil. Because uh, no, we don't know of life elsewhere in the universe, at least not yet. Um, and, and I think there's another thing that actually helps uh, Anne and I work together on this, and that in effect we've had sort of a, a fairly simple rule for book writing between the two of us for the two books we've done together. And that's we both have to agree on everything. And, you know, if how often is it that you agree on everything with your spouse? Um, you know, probably not very often. And we, you know, people often ask us, you know, whether it's crazy to write a book, let alone two books with your spouse. And the, the correct answer is probably yes, it is. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the way that we make it work is that we have very different views of how to tell stories of how of which kind of thing, which rabbit holes to go down. Um, and it's the ones that we both agree on and the wording that we agree on. You wouldn't, you wouldn't imagine, you can't imagine the number of times we go back and forth on chapters in terms of just how do we word this particular thing until we both like it. And, and that simple idea that, you know, we both have veto power and we, and you don't have to necessarily explain yourself. We just have to keep going <laughs> until we hit agreement. Um, and, and that rule is a pretty good rule for collaboration in general, and particularly for writing books with your spouse. Yeah. And, and I would just add to that, Rick, where both of us are kind of sticklers for accuracy and facts yeah. and detail. And so and opinionated. And, you know, so if I see something and I'm like, I'm not sure I'm buying this, you know, let's double check that. Or, you know, the way this is was said isn't, you know, maybe entirely right. So we will then. Uh, so that's a perfect example then okay well then how are we going to get this so that it is how we intend it to sound and it is also factual right yeah you've done a great job the chemistry between you pardon the pun but or the bio how about the biology between you is is really good and and us as readers and listeners we've really enjoyed your journey here so thank you so much it's um it's a, this is important stuff. I mean, this regenerative meaning. Okay, so let's now go to dirt, okay? Now, Dave, the, that word regenerative was not being used when, I mean, how, how long ago did you write dirt? I, well, it came out in tw 2007, um, and so I was working on it 2005 to 2008. And yeah, people were not really talking about regenerative agriculture mm -hmm. or soil health. I, you know, I ended up at the end of the book looking at, 
Uh, well, basically, at the end of the book, I argued we needed to go to essentially organic no-till farming. Yeah. Uh, and yet I couldn't find anybody who was doing it. And then and now here I am talking to somebody who's doing it. <laughs> um, you know, and people told me I was crazy, that there was nobody doing that. You couldn't do it and so forth. Yeah. But, you know, it seemed to be the direction that made sense based on that long backstory. Um, but, yeah, we've, you know, when you, when we, it can be very frustrating at times to look at how far we still need to go in agriculture to really reform it, to make it, re, to make regenerative the new conventional in terms of everybody doing it. Yeah. But if you compare where we were 15 years ago, back when I wrote that book, we've come a long way. And, you know, there's people who were doing it at the time that I wrote that book that are, you know, now more people are aware of. Yeah. So, okay. I can't imagine writing a book, first of all. So take us through, you know, how do you, how do you start? I mean, how, I mean, you probably don't start with the first chapter. Do you I imagine you wrote like chapter seven first or something? I, that's just a guess. But, but how, how do you, how do you get a book going? How do you do the research? How do you verify that what you're going to put in there is correct? All these things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, we, we generally start with sort of a rough outline. Um, and that outline is not necessarily the book we end up writing. Because uh, you learn what you're writing about on the journey through writing the yeah. book. You're building the bridge as you're doing it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, the trick really is how do you get started? And uh, I'll often start with, you know, with a preface or with a start, but realizing that that's not going to be the one that appears in the book. It's like a placeholder. It's kind of what you're thinking at the start. Um, and as you go through it and do the research, you sort of learn the things that uh, that resonate with you that makes sense that you think will make for good stories you meet people whose stories are you just have to tell um and so it's a process of assimilation well, you, you start with an idea you start assimilating stuff reading and the way that Anne and i have worked on it is it's a mix of reading history reading contemporary science though it's in the journals now so our readers don't have to we can filter it for them um yeah. and then also uh and, you know, meeting people telling their stories because um, nobody wants like a direct dump of stuff from the literature, uh, you know, from, from the scientific literature. It's much easier for the science to go down if you tell a good story or you meet people um, who are actually doing some of the things that you're writing about and talking about. And you can illustrate and cut back and forth between that history, science and direct experience. Um, and then, you know, in terms of the books that Ann and I write together, we argue over it for about two years. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> we get it shaped up. That's okay. That's all right. Yeah. Well, and I think what you realize too, Rick, so anybody who's ever written a book, attempted to write a book, you're motivated to do that for some reason. So you have either a small pile or a good sized pile of ideas. And as you are, um, and I think, you know, especially as it, one goes through life, you start to sort of accumulate experiences, ideas, and knowledge. And you eventually get to the point where I think this means something. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to try and, you know, tell my story or the, or the story of this subject matter. Um, and the way kind of you, so you sort of start with the, some of these core ideas that you think are right and that you'd like to include. And then, of course, you start just reading ravenously. And I have always been that kind of a reader ever since I was a little kid. I don't, yeah. I think I attribute that to my mom. She always had lots and lots of um, books around and she particularly liked English literature. So 
And I never, I'd open these books and I'd read like some old poem or something and I'd put it away and think, oh, that's crazy. And, and yet I think that exposure to seeing different ideas and different things written down yeah. is what makes you realize, oh, there's, there's really a lot out there. And with the kind of books that we write, this nonfiction, I have to tell you, there is so much interesting stuff in history to use as a springboard. And you look at an endeavor as old as agriculture or as old as medicine yeah. in human history. And let me tell you, there's a lot of stories. There's a lot of things that um, you can use to say, hey, we got it right 300 years ago and it's still right. Or you say, hey, we were way off track 300 years ago and we still haven't figured it out Yeah, that we have. And so I also heard this other thing once that I thought, gosh, I should try this sometime. This sounds like a way more efficient way than I go about writing a book. And it was it's it's from one of my favorite um, authors. Her name is Amy Stewart. And uh, she's written about plants and soil. And she wrote a great book for anyone interested in the flower industry. It's called Flower Confidential. She's a terrific nonfiction writer. She strayed into some fiction stuff. But anyway, this is what Amy said. She said, you know, take all your ideas, get yourself a pile of three by five cards. And I love old school. I love writing things, getting away from the digital devices. You got your pile of three by five cards yeah. and you just write these pile, just one idea per card. And you can start that. And she says, lo and behold, you're not going to believe how much that pile is going to grow after several months of doing this. She yeah. she starts a new book every January, just about. And it's because she's oh. got percolating away uh, these three by five cards with ideas. And what I like about the three by five cards is you can organize them and reorganize them. You can write some notes on the back. You can add to more on the front. And this becomes a very loose, very loose outline then of your thinking, yeah. you yeah. know? and how you want to organize things. So I, I really like that. I'm really a tactile person. And if you even had like a wall, you could put this stuff up on a wall, see what kind of, is there any natural flow or story arc to yeah. it, you know? And, uh, and of course, memoir is a great way to start. Like I just, you've got, I can just tell, you've got some stories to tell and, and, you know, a memoir isn't like from birth to, you know, death. A memoir is whatever portion of your life you want to write about. Yeah. So Anne may organize stuff that way. <laughs> this is how hey. I organize stuff. That, hey, yeah, that's me right there, right? That's me. Yeah, there's no organization there. We're, and and actually there is. If anybody touch, if my wife Carol touch, don't, don't, don't touch any of that. I've, I've got it organized. Oh, Rick, that's a pile of mess. Yeah. yeah so what one day i'll read all the stuff in that box yeah. but not yet yeah <laughs> yeah oh boy yeah well okay so let's go let's go back to dirt um fabulous book um and and i i have to admit um i uh i have floaters in my eyes it's hard for me to to, to read because the floaters come in so i'm an audio guy so i i plug in and and do it right here which is great um so dirt I've, I've listened to that one twice okay and what is so chilling about that book to me is the fact that we haven't learned anything and we just keep repeating 
the same problems. Well, yeah. Why is that? That's a really good question. Um, and I think it's in part, you know, the closest I can come to that answer is sort of a two-part answer where the, the problem with land degradation and soil erosion is a slow one. And so yeah. it plays out over the course of lives. And I, I had a, a revelatory experience for me once going, it was after I wrote Dirt, so it was actually I sort of figured out the, the backstory on all this. But I went to speak at a farming conference in Kansas, and there was a gentleman uh, that stood up at the back of it who, at the end, basically uh, said something like, you know, uh, I came here reluctantly, wasn't sure you'd have anything worth listening to say, you know, you're from Seattle, you're not from around here, you're not even a farmer. But what you spoke rang true. I've yeah. seen it in my life over the course. This is a gentleman probably in his 70s, perhaps even in his 80s, yeah. who basically said, you know, my grandparents had rich black soil, uh, a foot of it or so, and he doesn't have that anymore. It's been degraded. He saw it go downhill over the course of his lifetime. Yeah. But it, it accumulated a little bit year by year. And as part of researching dirt, I looked into the um, looking at the data for soil loss around the world. And the average pace of soil erosion off of conventional fields I came up with was about a millimeter and a half a year. That's a grain of sand a year yeah. on average. Some years, nothing happens. Other years, you lose a few more. Yeah. Or you have a big, a big event right after you've plowed and you lose a lot of it. Um, but, you know, it's that slow pace that it's really hard, I think, for us to recognize in, in yeah. you know, in real time. And our, our species is really good at reacting to immediate crises. Now, not, we don't always make the right choices, right? Anyone with a teenager knows that. Um, but, the, <laughs> the, but we're good at responding to, we, we tend to respond to immediate stimuli. And it's yeah. the long-term slow burn things that tend to not get addressed that can grow into really big crises. And that ended up being the story of dirt of society after society, where yeah. you know, with a few exceptions where people did take good care of their land over the long run, um, societies, you know, overtilled uh, for the most part um, and gradually lost the fertility of their land. But they only a few people really had the sort of insight and the luxury of being able to look back through history at different times in history. Cause most of the time, most people in most places were struggling to feed themselves. Yeah. Um, and so I think we're at a unique point in history now where you can look back at those lessons and you can look at the science that we have today and you can think of potential solutions. And that's sort of the space that Ann and I are trying to operate in, in terms of recognizing those problems uh, and where regenerative farmers are operating in, recognizing mm -hmm. the nature of the problems and adapting our, our uh, thinking or our practices to new ways of doing things that can combine, um, you know, the, the wisdom that we can get from looking backwards with the technology that we can get or imagine looking forwards. Um, that's a long answer to your question, but I think that part of the problem is no. it's a slow. It's a slow process, yeah. and we're not good at dealing with those. I totally agree. When the degradation is is slow and you don't even see it happening in front of your eyes, you don't think anything about it. But, you know, I and this is just a little bit different, but yet it's not. I mean, my I have a, a wonderful father. He, he his memory is unbelievable. The things he can remember in his childhood and all of these things. And he says to me, he says, Rick, he says, our weather in my lifetime has changed. Our seasons now have shifted for to two and a half weeks further into the fall now. So, and, and he's right, he's right. We have warmer weather like you would have in, in September into November now. 
and and but yet it's so but that's a 70 year thing he's talking about and it takes that long and then then all of a sudden when it's brought to your attention it's like oh yeah yeah i yeah i get that so dirt is a great now i gotta ask you now when you wrote dirt did you think you were going to write book number two no or three or four no simple answer is no in fact by the time i finished dirt I was so overwhelmed with the story I put together and had been so immersed in it that I, I wanted to write an, the, for a next, I wasn't even thinking about writing another book, but my publisher came back and go, well, what's your next book? I'm like, uh, <laughs> um, and I ended up writing a book about the history of science and religion um, because there's a long history of geology and Christianity and, and cross-pollination actually as much as conflict between the two that I found fascinating in terms of just how people have thought about the origin and nature of the world and argued about it for 2000 years. So I, I took a couple of years to write that. And what's and the name of that book? Back to thinking about soil. What's the name of that book? Uh, that, that book's called The Rocks Don't Lie. That's okay, I saw that, yeah. The Rocks Don't Lie. Um, isn't it amazing? I mean, the amount of reading you two are doing, I mean, isn't it crazy how much you've learned through this? this this 15 or 16 year journey it, it truly is yeah definitely and and it's funny right because you can i think you can dip back into science and science these days at least in biology with all of everything that's been learned at the molecular and cellular level about the way plants animals people and microbiomes you know um function and relate to one another and so on but even with history that you think oh well we know that history you know there's always new interpretations of history both yeah. your own based on you know the context of what's happening today and of course everybody's always inter reinterpreting history based on <laughs> sort of present present day things so there's no there's certainly no end of things to kind of pick up and take another look at and ask yourself, do I still think the same way about this? Or do I think, yeah. you know, yeah. differently because I know more, somebody's brought something more to, you know, my attention on this topic. Right. Yeah. Something you didn't yeah. think about. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so Dave, you then, you then, you did your little two year hiatus and then what, what sparked, uh, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the hidden half of nature is the next, the next yeah. book. Yep. Now this, I mean, if you had, if you were going to ask me which one of your books is my favorite, ah, I don't think I could come up with an answer because they're all, they just, they just build on each other. So, Anne, I want to start with you, Hidden Half of Nature. You're the biologist here. Obviously, the hidden half is what we can't see, the, all that livestock that I call it underground, yeah. doing the magic work that they do. So, so take it away, Hidden Half of Nature. Yeah, you know. Dave, it, I had um, I had been working on the garden um, at our at our previous home, and I Rick, I didn't know what I was doing when all I knew was I, I want a garden. Finally, we got a house, and it was pushed way over to one side of the lot. I'm not talking about eight thousand acres, okay? I'm talking about three thousand square feet. And so, people out there, farmers are laughing, going, "What? That's nothing." I cannot tell you how much time, thinking, and energy three thousand square feet can occupy in your life and in your brain. But it's an awful lot. 
And especially when you, I'm a person who, <laughs> I kind of have to do things to know if they're going to work out, whether that's, you know, trying to put furniture in a room. It's like, I can't picture how that chair is going to look over there. We're going to put the chair there. Then we're going to sit everything up and then we're going to know, is this working yeah. or not? So that's how it is outside too. I don't know if this plant's going to work here or this thing's going to work like that. We just got to put things out there. Then we got to see. So there was a lot of that going on, but almost immediately it was like, oh my God, I can't believe this. This soil is full of rocks. This soil is really dry. This is like dead dirt. This is like dashing dreams. This whole situation is terrible bad. So then I just thought we got to fix this somehow. And that was sort of the beginning of my education as a gardener that I just fondly call, you know, the organic matter chronicles, because that's that's what brought things around. And at one point I put the garden on a on a tour. Yeah, neighborhood tour because someone had said, wow, this is a great garden. And I'm like, oh, OK, sure. Yeah, let's see if this will go on the tour. So I did. And then Dave said, hey, you should write a book about the garden. And I'm like, what? So I blame him for getting us going on the hidden half. But we we did. And and no, yeah, we had talked about earlier. This book was going to be different. It, it it took a different direction than where it started out. But I think both both of us were really pleased with how both, you know, as you put it, the underground livestock were just key to what had brought our soil back to life. And, you know, of course, wow, that could happen really on any piece of ground, whether it's your postage stamp sized thing that we had or yeah. 8,000 acres. And then this was all, Size that yeah, uh, this was all coming around. All of our research and thinking on this coincided, not planned at all with all of this research on human health, um, on the microbiome, because a big project Lots of researchers have been working for some time on the human microbiome. And then lo and behold, it comes out. I'm like, oh, my God, I think our bodies are a different version of soil. There's all these microbes that are running yeah. things and we don't know what they are. We don't know what kind of compounds no. and molecules um, they're producing. But we do know that what we eat, they eat. And when we eat poorly, they eat poorly. No. And and then, you know, sooner or later, you you get you know deep into the world of microbiology and that was just so fascinating because i've always been a a kind of you know a, a plant and animal gal like what can i see and get my hands around and get some binoculars and look at or something like that and then all of a sudden i'm entranced with these invisible creatures that i can't even see and don't really know what they do that blew me away in the process of writing that book i i can't i would just sit there sometimes and just you know, David described being overwhelmed with dirt. I was overwhelmed with the significance of how much had been overlooked in biology, human health and agriculture with respect to what you think are these tiny insignificant organisms and talk about turn something on its head. And then we come to learn, oh, they're running the show. Holy <laughs> smokes. Yeah. You better wake up and examine our practices and our thinking and everything that we do. Yeah. So go go ahead, Dave. Give us your. Now this is a book you two wrote together, correct? Yep. So yep. Give, give us. Okay. So do you? Okay. You know this is what gets me though. So okay. So Anne is is sitting in on on her favorite chair and 
and and she's right. She's got a three by five. Uh, I'd call those <laughs> recipe cards because that's what my mom wrote her recipes on. Uh, and you know, they're index cards. Yeah. So how do you guys come together and 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 say, okay, chapter one is going to be this? You know, you know what I mean. So yeah. how, do you, how do you do that, Dave? I'm not sure I remember. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, uh, but it's, you know, we, we basically make an outline and we, we start working on it. And Anne and I have kind of different styles of how we would do that, where I'll just start writing and start throwing stuff down, knowing that I'm going to go back and cut it up and move it around and change okay. it a lot. Anne's much more deliberate in terms of okay. how she'll frame a chapter. And, you know, in terms of a proposal that we would take to a publisher, we try and work out what the basic idea is and the arc of it and a, 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 a set of chapters that kind of make sense. And we think about, you know, describing the basics that we would look into in those chapters. Yeah. Uh, but once we get down to actually writing them, generally one of us will take sort of a first crack at at a chapter, and but realizing we have these different styles and our sort of key is iteration yeah um where we start and realize it's kind of like training a dog with a clicker right it's like yes no yes no yes no on the clicker um and so if you do the same thing with a draft of a research paper a term paper or a chapter or a whole book where you slide it back and forth and each person is going yes no yes no on each piece of it eventually it starts to come into focus and you get a feel for it and you both get comfortable with it and agree on where we're going and you know, it would I'd be lying to you if I told you there weren't times in writing um, either the hidden half or um, what your food ate the new one that um, that I didn't think like why are we going down that route? And I'm sure Ann thought the same thing about some of the things I was proposing. Um, but that's again, I think one of the strengths that we have as a team on this yeah. is that there's I know for sure that there's directions in both those books that I never would have thought to look in. Um, but that Anne sort of directed us towards and took us down. And I suspect the inverse is probably true too. Yeah. yeah. You know what, you know what you call that? You call that diversity. That's what that is. So, Oh yeah, actually you're right. Yeah. So, but you know, when I, I mean, it's been several, it's been a while since I read that book or audio, audio, listen to it, but I can remember the passion that was in those, those words that you wrote. I mean, you guys were into that, that book you the biology part of this because it's like all of a sudden we woke up and realized like you said earlier and these these guys are in charge and we're just now kind of you know there's people that have probably figured this out but we as 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 outsiders looking in are kind of figuring this out and that book really really sparked my interest in learning more about the microbial biome that that book right there yeah Yeah. and i i think what what just sort of really blew me away at the time about that book about the hidden half of nature was that oh wow things do not work like we thought they did and and it it was so different than practices in medicine and agriculture that I just couldn't shake that. I just thought, but hang on a minute here, folks. Now what's coming to light is that, you know, it, it nature and people and so forth were often portrayed as, you know, you, you think about evolution as, and the, and the way that life has come about as always being about conflict. I mean, yeah. 
Yeah. You know, you got nature red in tooth and claw. That's a classic phrase. And what it refers to is conflict and competition, conflict and competition. And that <laughs> may have been a reflection of the economic and political systems at the time that um, those kinds of ideas were being written about, you know, a couple of centuries ago. And, and yet, the more you look around at nature and how the natural world and the environment actually functions it's not so much about competition as it is about hey you can do something different than what i can do and i think when we put those skill sets let's call them together we could get even more we could both get places like that yeah. gives both organisms wheels and and a trajectory and a pathway that they otherwise wouldn't have and that that becomes super important if you're a one-celled organism because you actually don't have legs or wings or pollen or anything. So yeah. the, and, and that's why this idea of symbiotic relationships is really so powerful when you drill down into it and you begin looking at things. I mean, there's a lot, there's competition out there too, don't get me wrong, but what has been really overlooked in biology is a, the degree to which organisms um, are in relationship with one another yeah yeah. You know? Balance. yeah yeah and if you know that then it kind of means that wow we've been jamming monkey wrench after monkey wrench after monkey wrench into the biology that is responsible and underpinning the health of people plants and animals for such a long time yeah we're in our farming um the way the farming is currently done and it's been done for a long time um there's basically no regard for the soil it's feeding that that cash crop where in the way we need to look at it is feed the soil and then let the soil feed that crop you know whatever that crop may be and we have to get off of this merry-go-round that we're on and and really take this, I don't know if more seriously is the right word, but we need to understand that, that, that there are portions of this regenerative uh, systematic approach that can work across many different platforms of farming. You don't have to go 100% or 90 or 80, but do something, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But basically what we kind of got wrong in the 20th century in agriculture was our basic underlying philosophy of how we should be going about it. Yeah. Uh, we forgot about the, the importance of, well, we didn't know about and or forgot about the importance of soil life as the agent, the catalyst, if you will, that nature had long depended on to actually maintain the fertility of natural landscapes. And we thought we could do better um, with synthetic chemistry and, and a whole lot of disturbance. And it turns out that we inadvertently undermined a lot of the natural mechanisms that underpin the stability of the yeah. system in the first place. Yeah, and, and, and I can agree to that because when we came out of our heavy tillage, heavy fertility, heavy chemistry programs that we've been doing for decades, when we came out of that and rolled into the, 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 the reduction of input, starting this regenerative type mindset, I didn't know what it was called then, but the, the soil was like, what's going on here? Uh, it, it's just like gone to sleep on me because and that's what happened. The, we had at, by adding the synthetic inputs, we took all of the jobs away from all that microbial biome. It just got lazy. It had nothing to do. 
and 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 you folks heard me talk yesterday. That's where I think we've got to, you know, think about these microbial packages to bring in to help augment that process of transition of doing nothing to all of a sudden let's get going and let's do what you guys were were meant to do. Yeah, that that's really true, and I you know, and I can see why for anybody you know let's just take you take a farmer and you take a doctor and you, you sit him down and you're going to say look practices need to change and so what are we going to do and and how are we going to do it and you'll you'll i think most people can realize well you can't change overnight there's just that just doesn't happen that's not realistic but you do see a lot of examples and a lot of instances in many realms where, well, tomorrow I could start doing something a little different, yeah. you know, and, yeah. and the next day and the next day and the next day, pretty soon you've got yourself, you know, a new habit or a new practice or you're tweaking something and you're tweaking it in a way that that David mentioned um, that we write iteratively, which is to say, you know, we take a look at something and, oh no, we got to scrap that and start again. Or, hey, this is getting really good now. You know, we've rewritten 80% of it and there's just like 2% more and then, you know, it'll be done. So I think willingness, willingness to change and, and, and helping people change through, you know, removing barriers, providing knowledge, economic incentives always help. And you get that all working together and it becomes less scary and um, more doable. I mean, face it, we've all at this point in our lives done difficult things and we never achieved success overnight. That just no. doesn't, that no. just doesn't happen. I don't even care if you win Powerball. That's yeah. still not going to happen. All your problems that you had the day you won are going to be the same as the day after, right? Yeah. Money, yeah. money. Money can help you solve problems, but you yourself are the only one who's actually going to like work your way through yeah. the actual solution and implementing it, ex you know, executing it. Yeah. I hear another book in here in this conversation. I hear another book coming. <laughs> All right. Let's go to growing a revolution. So, okay. So before you go there, all right, I asked you when you wrote Dirt, was there going to be any more? And you said no. Okay, now you've done Hidden Half of Nature. Did you think there was going to be a third book then? Yeah. You, okay. Oh, yeah. No, okay. In, in, writing, in writing The Hidden Half of Nature, it was you know literally eye-opening in terms of, oh, there might be a path to solution here in terms okay. of thinking about how we could solve the problems I was writing about in Dirt. And I, and I struggled in writing the last chapter of Dirt to try and write a reasonably optimistic chapter um, because you look back through history and it's not a very, not a very uh, uh, optimistic story. No. Um, but when we, when we saw Anne restore the fertility to our, our lot so fast, you know, in years, not decades, uh, it basically raised the question of, well, could you do this on a farm? You know, yeah. is, 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 is soil life really the key to reversing the decline of soil fertility? And that's why the subtitle of that book, Bring Our Soil Back to Life, is, you know, it, it's only partially a pun. It's quite a literal uh, um, subtitle. 
Yeah. We started, uh, and I had, I had been starting to get invitations to speak at farming conferences to tell the, the backstory, the erosional story, the dirt story. And I started to meet people like Gabe Brown and other regenerative farmers because they were speaking at the same conferences. And I distinctly remember having lunch with Gabe, I think at No-Till on the Plains back in, oh, I don't know, 2015, 16, sometime around then, um, around, around the time that um, 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 The Hidden Half came out. And I started thinking, oh, you know, maybe what we should do is actually think about writing a new book uh, about basically regenerative agriculture and the, the promise that it has and decided that the best way to do that would be to go visit regenerative farmers and ask them what they're doing um, and then try and pull the story together from that in terms of what might be generalizable. And so I visited you know, folks like Gabe and I visited folks in Central America and in Equatorial Africa on small subsistence farms um, and uh, David Brandt in Ohio and, and folks up in Saskatchewan basically spent all the time and money that I had to go visit farmers uh, and interviewing the, a few of the people that I had met and that got connected to through those connections. And when I, when I stood back, I sort of realized that my job was to listen and then try and generalize and go, okay, what are the commonalities between all these different farmers in different parts of the world with you know different crops and climates and technology access and so forth? And it boiled down to essentially cultivating beneficial life in the soil the stuff we were writing about in the hidden half of nature yeah. um, and the practices that it would take to do that are, you know, minimizing disturbance, growing cover crops, uh, growing diversity of crops, using livestock as an accelerant. If it's regeneratively grazed that the whole sort of um, uh, ball of wax at the general principle level seemed to be fairly universal. It applied across the board to every farm, every of one of these successful regenerative farms I visited around the world. So I wanted to write the, the story of that and why it is organic matter and feeding soil life was really the key to rebuilding soil fertility and solving the problems that I wrote about in dirt. So Anne and I like to think about the dirt book as the problem definition. The hidden half of nature is kind of, well, what's the science behind potential solutions? Yeah. Growing a revolution is more the practicality behind the solutions. Um, and then that set up the question that led to the new book, What's Your Food Ate, where by the time we got through with that, we were like, okay, by the time we got through with Growing Revolution, it was like, yes, the science behind regenerative agriculture actually makes sense uh, yep. when you look at it through the lens of soil ecology and soil and biology. You validated it by going and visiting the folks doing it. Yep. And it right. left the question of what does it mean for what's in our food? Right. And so that's we tried to sort of pull it all together in what your food ate and look at the connections between soil health and human health, which is something that you know people have talked about for a long time. But we wanted to look at the, you know, the history of people thinking about it and talking about it, uh, but also what the science of the last 80 years and in the era of modern conventional agriculture, what have we learned since we cemented those conventional practices? Yeah. And what does it mean for what we need to do for to sustain farming and our own health into the future? Yeah. And boy, it was a lot of fun to research. You talked about, you know, how much reading we would do to write these books. Oh. That one, we read a thousand research papers. Oh my gosh. That's crazy. I don't even make my students do that. Yeah. No. And they're not very readable. I'll tell you that. Oh, Some I, of them, you've got to read them like three times, four times. What, what, what is going pretty on? pretty dry here? stuff. Yeah. It's very I, dry. Yeah. And written in code. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, and I, I have to say it would have been, I think, inescapable <clears throat> after 
the three books, Dirt, The Hidden Half, and and Growing a Revolution, to not write what your yeah. food ate. I mean, but, by that, you know, by that time, Rick, I mean, stuff is know. screaming at us like, yeah. oh, my God, the state, you know, it's like we know now about how soil functions and how important that is and that it's has a lot to do with biology. And look, here's farmers who are adapting and adopting practices that are doing a much better job at conserving the biology of the soil and look at the results. And, you know, kind of what has been sort of most ironic to me along this whole journey is that, you know, this thing we call agriculture and Wes Jackson always talks about it, you know, the, the 10,000 year old, he calls it the 10,000 year old problem of agriculture for many of the reasons that, that um, are described in dirt, right? This is just ironic. We're trying to feed ourselves, but we're wrecking the soil. And yeah. how long can we keep doing this? And it was just ironic to me that this thing that was supposed to be so great, you know, agriculture, just like medicine, how is it that we've lost sight of the great promise of agriculture? We've solved for the most part, not entirely, but we've solved for the most part the amount of food. And somewhere along the way, we stopped asking, well, what is the quality of all that food that we're growing? And what does it have to do with our health and our well-being? Yeah. And we stopped asking that latter part. And and so with what your food ate, we really wanted to nail down and, and get that question, you know, back up to the surface. It's just as important as the quantity question, the yield question. Yeah. It's right there. Yeah, yeah. It's what is in this food? And and then you start diving into, you know, all the journals about human health and, and diet. And it's like really clear. You know, we talked about the Fab Four yesterday. Micronutrients are phytochemicals, a balance of fats, and lo and behold, microbial metabolites, right? These four things, yeah. that's our fab four that farming yeah. practices influence. Uh, and, and we want our plant and animal foods suffused with the right things in the right combinations. And you can get that through the right kind of farming practices. Right. So I, I just, I just want that question to like not I don't want us to lose sight of that question because it gets ever harder to try and punch through the yield ceiling to say, hey, oh. wait a minute here. Wait a minute here. Weren't we supposed to be growing food that's good for us? Yeah. Yeah. No, we've <laughs> lost our we've lost our perception or we think it needs to be quantity, not quality. So yeah. it's um hey, I, I just want to say something to the audience if We've got we've got two of the, the great ones here that write books about what we all care about. Ask questions. Come on. We've got Deanna's on tonight. Uh, how you doing, Deanna? Ask us a question. Um, all right. So let's let's go to, you know, I talk a lot about the six principles of soil health. This is where it all this is the, the foundation for all of this. So, and, and, and you, you guys base, I think you break it down to three. Is that correct? Three, and, and what, and what, I mean, I know you're just kind of uh, shrinking it down, but give us your three uh, principles. Yeah. It's funny when Dave was talking about growing a revolution and, and 
and how he was talking about the the way that we come together to write things. And so he's kind of what I call a spaghetti thrower. So there's all this stuff around. And he gives me this, you saw that pile, that box, that pile of stuff. So he gives it to me and I'm like, oh my God, get rid of this, get rid of this, get rid of this, get rid of this. Here we go. What we got, we got ditch the plow, cover up and grow diversity. And when you can manage it and you want to get some animals in there. Yeah. And, you know, another one would be really we got to minimize, you know, our use of the super duper toxic things because it's it's not always. It's really yeah. So yeah. but it is ditch the plow, um, cover up and grow diversity and get some animals in there other than your underground ones. Those will those will come along. But yeah, ground animals in there, you know, and this is an area that I'm going to go with your number one, um, you know, minimize disturbance. And I think we all agree that that's probably a two pronged, uh, approach. It's the chemistry and it's the, the tillage. So let's just talk about the tillage for a minute, because this is, this is, this is hard. Um, we have to, we have to be able to do things that, that we're comfortable doing and, and I'm going to tell you right now, uh, no-till organic, regenerative is hard. This is hard. And it can be demoralizing at times because, you it, it, you know, you know, you, you heard me talk yesterday. I don't use the word failure. It's outcomes I didn't expect. But, man, do I get a lot of those. I get a lot of outcomes I didn't expect. And then comes the question, can we do some tillage? Can we do some? if it's in acute situations? Yeah, and I think the short answer to that is yes. Um, and I think it's uh, the way that I tend to look at it. And again, I'm not gonna pretend to speak for Anne because when I try to do that, she usually corrects me, um, <laughs> would be to think about, you know, the, the operational thing would be to try and minimize both physical and chemical disturbance. So, yeah. you know, if you're an organic farmer and you're not gonna be able to use, uh, you know, very specialized chemistry to take out potential weeds, and if you're having a real problem, you know, a, Tillage might be your way to solve it in the short run, but yeah. it's re frequent routine tillage that causes the, the big problems in the long run. So, you know, if you have a, an organic system where you have and the problems with tillage are that it can cause soil erosion and it can degrade soil organic matter. Yeah. So if you have if you have a system that's fairly well protected from erosion and you have a system that is rich in organic matter and you have sources to replenish that organic matter, then the system can be resilient to a little bit of tillage every now and then. So in organic regenerative systems, you know, it's, it shouldn't be considered to be fair boten to actually to use tillage at all, but it should be the tool of last resort. Yeah. <laughs> um, and similarly, I would, I would argue in, in, on a, a non-organic regenerative farm uh, that resorting to, to synthetic chemistry should be a effort of last resort for chemical disturbance. Um, but I've been on farms uh, for farmers who are not organic who have done an incredible job at rebuilding the fertility of their land and that even though they hardly use any chemicals anymore at all whether it's nitrogen or, or insecticides or, or herbicides um, they, they may still use a little bit of it on occasion and yeah. it's that minimal aspect of both styles of disturbance i think is really the operative word and that's what creates a bit of a conflict if you will sometimes between people who think in organic terms versus regenerative terms versus conventional terms, because organic and conventional tend to be kind of black and white in terms of how they define things or of, of not doing things or, or having things permitted. Whereas if you think about a, a style of farming that is prioritizing the building of soil health, 
then if that's the objective in the North Star, there can be different ways to get there that you might need to adapt to the circumstances of a particular farm in a particular year. Um, and there's no sort of simple cookie cutter recipe for getting there. There's these broad general guiding principles. So in answer to your question, yeah, I think that yeah. one can get away with some tillage if you have a organic matter rich resilient system, it's not gonna be to the long-term detriment to, to pull out uh, a tillage implement every now and then when you need it. Yeah, yeah, I can I can buy into that, sure can. Um, Ed Bourgeois, he's, uh, he's a longtime listener. Uh, good evening, Ed. Um, his question is, what's the next area t for you two to explore? Um, I assume he means, well, I think, he, I think he meant to write a book guys. Oh, what, oh. what, what yeah. uh, what's the next chapter look like? Yeah. Well, I mean, we, we've, you know, what your food ate a, a thousand, <clears throat> a thousand references, um, a lot to read there. Uh, someone just was talking with us the other day and I thought that's kind of a neat idea. Um, and that is to maybe think about uh a kid's book version of this oh kids that's a great idea right, you know we don't want kids thinking food grows in a grocery store or out of a candy package or what other you know whatever crazy ideas it is you know they have about where their food comes from and um and and i think you know i'm total i'm i'm for open transparency about how does the world work and how does biology work and where are these plants we're eating plants and animals and so how do they get here into our kitchens and on our plates and let's go to a farm and take a look and yeah. what does the soil have to do with that yeah. so you know there's that's just like there's floating ideas floating around we've also talked a little bit about oh maybe some kind of a summary version for um for what your short. food ate yeah short cliff short, notes short. yeah kind of cliff notes kind of a thing um and then and i'm just also you know personally really curious and interested about the role of plants um throughout human history and how we have relied on them whether that is domesticated plants in agriculture or wild plants and we're not just eating them you know we Plants have been used for medicine for a long, long time. Yeah. Well. See, I was just thinking about that earlier in our in our conversation here. It'd be kind of cool to go back to the to the indigenous folks and find out what what was that species used for, or what. And I'll bet you they didn't use just one. I bet they used a combination of many. So yeah. that would be pretty cool, in my That'd opinion. Be cool. And they did not only you know were there mixtures, but. Um, sometimes we think of the plant body is all one thing and traditional healers i mean a leaf is really different than a seed yeah. really different than a stem is really different than a root and oh, yeah. so you know it's not just one plant it's kind of like oh there's five or six different parts of this plant that are used for different kinds of things because right long long before pharmaceuticals were around all we had was uh, our microbiome and our diet and what the healers of the tribe so to speak uh knew yeah what did, what did they know and what could they dispense yeah let's get to a couple things here deanna um i'm asking i have the utmost utmost respect for you rick and your operation but you didn't have the 
the the certification to satisfy mini my organic certification do you feel like the tillage pass is more or less detrimental to your soil biology if you are just considering soil health and soil life then she she comes down a little bit and she says in other words if you could would you use a targeted herbicide instead of a tillage pass if the certification wasn't the hurdle i i i, I struggle with this guys um a i don't want to farm that way i do not want to farm with tillage i just do not and b i no longer have the equipment to do that because that's part of the transition to being in this world i'm in if you want to do away with tillage or the desire to do tillage you sell all of your equipment and that's what we did so I think I think Deanna what I'm trying to do I'm very stubborn you you know that you know I'm stubborn and I'm trying to figure out how to do this with no tillage because I do not want to disrupt that soil microbial biome that I have spent years to build and I don't want to wipe it out in in a tillage pass and I understand that it's going it's it's going to heal quickly and it's going to come back but I don't know that I don't think anybody truly knows that and I'm just wanting to maintain my integrity and and yes I I suffer the farm suffers because of my stubbornness there are fields that will not yield very well I will be I have to be transparent about that but there are fields that will be wow where did that come from we've got to figure out what happened on both ends of that spectrum you know, so thank you, Deanna. I, I appreciate that. And, you know, I guess if I had to do something, I think I would do a reduced targeted chemical pass with the addition of humates and any kind of biology that I could get involved in that tank load to help that that healing process even quicker. So that's what I think I would I would do, Deanna. So thank you for your comments. I appreciate that. Um, and this is from, um, I, I, again, I apologize. I cannot see everyone's name. I don't know if this is Michael. I think it's Michael. And the reality of American ag is that more than 50% of the land is owned by non-farmers who are mostly driven by year-to-year -year cash flow versus thinking about long-term soil health. This situation is getting more pronounced as farmers are retiring. That's an excellent point because I think, what's the average age of the farmer these days? 58 or 59 years old, maybe 60? Yeah. Yeah, we're that's- gonna have, We're gonna have a huge void here in about 20 years of something, something's gonna happen. Right, right. You know, I think that is a good point and it is uh, a reality and a fact that that, that that is happening. And I don't have a good, um, answer for that other than somehow we have got to figure out a way in our country, whether you're talking, you know, in a, in a rural setting, like a farm or an urban setting, we've got to figure out ways to reward practices and people yeah. who are conserving things instead of destroying things. Yeah. As until we jigger the sort of economic incentives so that those who are doing things that are going to preserve the land and the planet 
um, for future generations. Until we can figure out a way to reward that, we're going to continue to have this situation that this person has, you know, has stated, which is absentee. Basically, you know, someone's owning the land, they're renting it out. And so what that means is a farmer, whoever's farming it, I'm not sure I'd call him a farmer, although, I, you know, in my book, if someone were a farmer, they wouldn't be solely doing these kinds of things, you know, to a piece of land. I think you have, get a really different outlook when you get somebody who owns, someone like yourself, Rick, who owns this land. Yeah. And you've got uh, family members that, you know, you're hoping to pass things along to. And even if you didn't have family members, um, others who think like you to take over when the time comes. Yeah. And we just yeah. don't have societal incentives uh, in place. Although... With the price of fertilizer going through the roof and um, the price of oil, I mean, if there's if the societal incentives to get off of fossil fuels actually come to play a bigger role in the marketplace, yeah, there could be some pretty strong economic incentives, even on the short term, for people to start thinking about prioritizing soil health. Oh, yeah. One of the big challenges for trying to deal with the problem, whether via absentee landlords or, um, or uh, uh, private holders, would be um, thinking about how to help farmers who are potentially interested in making the transition actually minimize their risk during the transition so that they yeah. can nobody yeah. wants to risk the farm on the crazy thing the guy in the nut next door is doing yeah. but even even if they're but if that nut turns out to be more profitable than you are that for enough years running you might start thinking about it and listening but still it's i think a big barrier uh, to wider adoption of regenerative practices is, is the perception of risk um and the things that we could do to try and minimize that and and help farmers through the transition really ought to have a, a major discussion point at the policy table when we talk about the farm bill and we talk about to the members of congress about what they should be doing about agriculture um you know helping our farmers through the transition ought to be near the top of the list yeah i yeah. I, I really you know on this whole question of regenerative and how do you increase adoption of it and um various comments out there about sort of the reality that farmers are facing that they say there's no way I'm getting near that for what right. partly the reason Dave just said. I'd really like to see some kind of a effort to um, find out, talk. Farmers say there's these barriers and these challenges and that's why I can't go that way. And I'd like to see a pretty concerted effort to talk to more farmers to learn more about what are the perceptions around these barriers and challenges? Because once you've once you learn that and you've talked to enough farmers in enough regions of the country, you could start to develop sort of local and regional ways to fix and address that problem. So if it's lack of knowledge might be one problem, lack of equipment might be another problem. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I need some kind of an insurance program because, you know, I can't go for a year without money right you know and so yeah. if we if we can understand that and then we can put some things in place to help farmers get through these challenges that would be a huge help it's it's just like right you know somebody breaks their leg we don't put them out on the street and say why don't you go find a cast and some crutches and then come no. back and you can run the you can run the track race yeah. no you give people crutches you give them physical therapy all of yeah. these things, right? 
to get them back to the way, the way they were before the accident. Right, right. Or or to advance, you know, this is why kids go to school. There's good things that come come out of the end of it, right? You know, you know more, you can do things. So I I think we've sorely, sorely um we just have not treated farming and farmers well when it comes to helping get practices where they need to be if we're gonna conserve land. Yeah. You're exactly right because that is a big burden. I mean, that financial burden is on your brain at all times, and it then it then clouds your judgment for the other part of, of what you need to decide on. And if you could take that that away and, and they relax and not have to worry about that, oh my gosh, am I going to be able to pay that loan back? Let's worry about how am I going to combat foxtail or or whatever the situation may be. I to totally agree. Totally agree. Everyone loves your youth book idea. I love that idea. I think that, see, I try to talk to our local FFA chapter as much as I can. And I want to tell you guys something. If you've never been to Indianapolis and gone to the National FFA Convention, it just got over, I think, last week. Oh my gosh, you want to walk into a charged environment. They're, they're in the Lucas Oil Stadium. That place is full. It's full. And they do the National FFA Convention there, and it is electric. And if you guys ever get the opportunity to go, maybe that'll be part of your research for this, this uh, book for the youth. But that is worth checking out. Yeah, um, that sounds exciting. Yeah. Uh, let's see here. There's uh, there was something else here. Um, Ed Ed Bourgeois had a comment. Isn't or I mean, it's a question. I'm sorry. Isn't disturbance also an important part of nature? Maintaining su successional diversity of plants and microbes. Yeah, I mean that that that's a good point. And in, in natural ecosystems, you know, you know, you get uh, a volcano blowing. I mean, look what the hurricane just did to Fort Myers. Yeah. And um, you get landslides and you have these natural disruptions and perturbations, but they're not ever, with the exception of hurricanes, let's kind of set that aside for the moment. But at least like with landslides, let's say, or volcanoes out, you know, we live in volcano country. Mount Rainier hasn't blown in a while or St. Helens no. or anything like that. So these disruptions don't tend to happen every year and, and just sort of you know, radically change things. Disruptions in nature, you know, they're just not so frequent as to never allow any sort of stability to settle back into a system. And I mean, for, for that matter, you know, I guess maybe we're talking about different scales and levels of disruption because, you know, you set animals out on a pasture, that's kind of disruptive. They're eating the plants. The yeah. neat thing about plants, They've evolved with herbivores, and so plant uh, plant animal interactions are sort of a, a built in disturbance that can uh, drive the development and growth of plant communities at the same time that it's driving the populations of you know herding herding animals. And the real key thing there is thinking about succession below ground in terms yeah. of your bacteria to fungal ratio, where, you know, basically farming is an act of maintaining the landscape in a very early successional stage because you're always changing your crop. 
you're not unless you're an orchardist or, or a vineyard operator yeah. um, but when you look below ground um, you know the a frequently tilled soil or a massively over herbicided or over uh, fertilized soil tends to be very bacterial whereas mm -hmm. as you cut your disturbance down you get a higher fungal component and that's where you get a lot of those beneficial metabolites and the benefit symbiotic partnerships you you want both bacteria and fungi in the soil so yep. there's sort of a challenge of how do you maintain this the surface in a um in an early successional stage because you want to keep growing different crops but get the subsurface to be a little more further advanced in the the succession in terms of the soil biology and that's where the idea of minimizing disturbance, so you don't like totally take it, don't have to necessarily totally take it out. But if it's frequent in the way that Ann was just talking about, you're going to keep setting that bacterial fungal ratio back to the bacteria and never progress to the point where you're getting yeah. all the maximum benefits that you could yeah. get as a farmer from from the subsurface life. See, I, I think I think part of uh, I get crazy ideas a lot. And I think something Write that them down, be... put them on a three by five card. Yeah, that's what I need to do. I need to get my my mom's recipe card. I'm going to continue to call them recipe cards. My mom wrote four cookbooks and she published them herself. And it, 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 was, it was that was fascinating. But, yeah. um, you know, when I think about things that that we need answers to, I think about a, P, uh, a Ph.D. student who's working on a thesis and we need to understand what is the amount of disturbance that can be accepted and, and make this still work? So can you still spray herbicide? And if so, what amount, what frequency? Can you still do some till? That's the stuff that I think needs to be studied. And then, because guys, unless you know something here I don't know, there's not a definition that's universal for regenerative agriculture. So yeah. how in the world can we all be heading for the same goal if we don't even know what that goal is? Yeah, no, that that that's a that's an issue. And the David mentioned earlier, and I you know firmly believe this, it's a it's kind of the challenge and the blessing of regenerative agriculture, and that is that um, the journey to it and the continued practice of it looks different on every farm and and that sure. goes to your question how do we learn and do research and study more about what's an acceptable level of of tillage or this thing or that thing the answer to that is that it probably changes every day depending yeah. on what's going on with your soil because ph changes temperature changes moisture levels change and so you're you're trying to sort of ask, can we get this one standard for this dynamic system? And the answer is probably not. That's gotta be that's gotta be really dialed in, you know, to maybe a particular part um, of a season. I mean it's it's not unlike the human body, right? You need your grand no, we just met we just met your grandson Noah. He's yeah. got totally different dietary needs than his mom and then yeah. than you. Yeah. And so that right? So you can't ever think we're just gonna throw, you know, the same thing at oh, I agree. I agree. the needs are the needs are very the needs are very different. And yeah. yeah. So that you have to regionalize I think you've got to regionalize the United States. Let's just talk about that. We I mean yeah. the whole world, but 
we got to regionalize the United States because you're not going to treat the soil in New Mexico like you're going to treat it in Iowa. That's, that's not that's not good. If that does happen, you're going to have a disaster. So we need to regionalize it, get ambassadors or mentors from each of those regions and start teaching the teachers about the principles of soil health that work in that region. That's exactly that's exactly right. I mean, if you look at the. Uh, um, there's this wonderful exhibit at the Smithsonian back, I don't know, 15 years ago or so. Um, I'm forgetting the name of it, but it was it was all about the soil. Um, oh. And as part of that, they took uh, uh, peels, sort of uh, profiles of the soil, mount of soils from every state in the union, yeah. mounted them on big boards, and then arrayed them on a wall in the Smithsonian. And you could kind of see with your mind's eye all the different colors from the rich black earths of the I states to the, 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 the more white soils, than the, the, the desert soils of the southwest and the yeah. soils of the southeast. And the, um, you, know, you could kind of see all the differences. And if you take the same definition or same target for what defines a healthy soil and apply it in all those different environments, it's, it's meaningless. Yeah. Um, because the context really matters for how, how much, you know, a 4% soil organic matter content in New Mexico is huge. In Iowa, that's kind of pathetic. It's, it's not that yeah. great. Um, yeah. So, you know, thinking about that, the context matters a lot. I, I, in that giant box of papers that I brought into the screen a little while ago, there's one in there is uh, a review paper that an academic wrote about, you know, how people are using, the, how people are defining regenerative agriculture. It's a very recent paper. Um, and what they basically came up with is there's lots of different definitions out there, but there's one common element to them all. And that common element's the one I like to use as the definition, and that's agriculture that builds soil health. It's yeah. agriculture that's oriented around building soil health. That's um, simple and to the point. Yeah, and it seems to be, it's the common, for whoever's calling themselves regenerative these days, that's the commonality. That's sort of the tribal identity. Um, and maybe there's different pathways, maybe we need certifications, maybe we need specifics, uh, but I like to think about that broader goal as the North Star that we need to we need to integrate as the, the guiding light in modern agriculture. And if we did that, I think organic and conventional systems will across the board improve if that's the goal that farmers are trying to maintain as their navigation beacon. Yeah. Yeah, we've got a we've got a, a, a Matt Cohn. Uh, thank you, Ann and David, for your work in soil health. You your input and views in this field is irreplaceable. I'm doing what I can to grow my own food for health reasons, but I need to also buy things from others. What are your thoughts of how to quantify healthy grown commodities? Healthy in the way of nutrient density and low chemical residue, especially glyphosate. Are there any labs out there that we lay, are there any labs out there that we can, as people can submit samples to for nutrition and residues? I have health issues and have found very high glyphosate levels in my body. Wow. Um, I think, um, I don't know of, of, of labs in particular to which you could send food samples. But, you know, there's a whole subfield of medicine that's called functional medicine. And these are um, sort of classically trained doctors who have also integrated into their thinking and practice um, 
things about the food in a person's diet. And I would not be surprised if um, this individual who commented wasn't able to find a functional doctor somewhere around where they live and who might know of a lab. With regard to the question of, you know, how do you know if you're buying commodity, if you're buying foods made from, you know, commodity crops. Right. How, how do you try to minimize, you know, getting food that does not have various kinds of chemical residue on that? Um, one way is, you know, in theory, stuff that's organically certified is not supposed to have glyphosate on it. And so that would be one way to go about it. Another way would be to, you know, it's funny, the globalization of this planet, we sometimes, you know, we curse about it. Oh, it's wrecking local markets. But, you know, this is an example of where with the Internet, you could do a little bit of research and perhaps look into buying directly from uh, farms or farmers that are not where this individual lives, but are in another location where that farmer farmers would be able to say, you know, look, we don't we don't use we don't use these kinds of chemicals and right. farm in an area where neighboring farms do not use these kinds of chemicals. And um, so that's, you know, those are just a couple of thoughts that come come to mind um, on that question. Because right. you can mail order, you, you know, these days you can get stuff through the mail and grains yeah. ship really well. And uh, in fact, I, you know, we get our walnuts from this walnut farmer in California because that's where you grow walnuts. And we like what they do. Yeah, and we like what yeah. they do. I had, uh, we were in, Cal my wife, Carol and I were in California this summer and around the Sacramento area and we had some walnuts. Oh my gosh, those were good. They didn't have that bitter taste to them. They were smooth and, and, and mellow. Yeah, it makes a difference how your food is grown. That is for sure. Well, we didn't get to talk a lot. We've almost gone for an hour and a half, guys. But, but this book here is your latest book, and this kind of wraps it all together. So, you've got, you've. I don't know what you want to call them. I don't know if they're 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 subtitles or sub, you know, categories. But, um, soil, plant, animal, and people, and. Can you quickly go through, and I think the way you guys presented this at the conference yesterday was, was really good. Dave, you did the first two, and Ann, you, you brought the last two. So, Dave, can you just quickly go through what what do you mean by, by that? What, what, what's the concept of this book? Yeah, so what we're looking at is trying to connect the way that farming practices influence the soil to how that ultimately ripples up to influence human health. And as Ann mentioned earlier, there's sort of four areas that we were able to you know, document both from a little bit of our own research and our survey of the peer-reviewed research in terms of how farming practices affect um, uh, farming practices that affect soil health, influence the amount of um, micronutrients, uh, the minerals and vitamins of phytochemicals in our diet, the balance right. of fats in our meat and dairy, and the microbial metabolites that make it both into crops and our meat and dairy products. And so the, the sort of super simple summary of how that works is looking at, we broke it down into those, the, the linkages between those sections. So when you think about how farming practices affect soil health, the two biggest ways in, on the detrimental end are tillage and the overuse of chemicals, uh, particularly synthetic nitrogen. It undermines uh, the, the uh, fungal partnerships the crops uh, can maintain. 
we go yeah. into the science behind how the, all that works uh, in in the book. I'll spare you all the details here because uh, we we laid it out there. But you know, if you, if you look at those two things, essentially tillage and then over fertilization, and then you could add herbicides and pesticides to that list as well. But the big two really are overuse of nitrogen and overuse of tillage, two things that regenerative practices wean farmers off of. So if one, and once farmers are using less of those practices, communities of soil life change. It's not so much about the number of bacteria in the soil. It's not that conventional practices sterilize the soil, although they do eliminate most worms and most fields I've been on, yeah. um, is they change the community composition and they change the, they really disrupt the fungal symbioses that crops can develop. And those fungal symbioses, along with the bacterial ones, are very important for getting minerals out of the soil particles and into crops. Yeah. And they're very important for uh, the, the helping to stimulate the, the develop the plants um, make ma manufacturing of phytochemicals. Um, and then, so how does that affect the health of crops? Well, minerals and phytochemicals actually turn out to be nature's health plan for maintaining the health of crops. And so, when plants aren't taking up as many mineral elements, they're not make they're not able to make as many of the enzymes that they need to, for their own processes and their own right. biochemistry. And and if they're not making as many phytochemicals, they don't derive the benefit from those phytochemicals. Why do yeah. they make phytochemicals? To communicate, you know, hazards amongst themselves. To, to essentially, plants communicate in a chemical language, um, and uh, phytochemicals are a key part of plant defense and health maintenance. So when we under when we undercut their ability to take up minerals and yeah. make phytochemicals, we undercut their health, which then means we need to use more pesticides and herbicides. Um, which means, and, and more fertilizer, which means we undercut them even further. It's literally an agricultural, uh, agrochemical treadmill. Yeah. And so those are the sort of the connections between soil, you know, the way farming practices influence soil health, the way soil health influences crop health. And then that hands off um, in the third section of the book to what that all means for animal health. Yeah, yeah I think this, maybe the simplest way to sum this book up, um, Rick, is that we, we th often think about whether it's it's crops or animals, they're pulling things, in the case of crops, they're pulling things out of the so soil and incorporating them into their body. You know, stuff like magnesium, and calcium and nitrogen, all that sort of stuff. And animals do the same thing with whatever diet. So that's sort of one pathway for how you get things into the plant and animal foods in the human diet. And in both of those cases, it's mediated and moderated and enhanced and helped if you have the right microbial communities yeah. plus some other biology in place. That uptake can happen. So that's, let's just call that sort of the assimilation route. That's one major way that stuff gets into plant and animal foods. There's another major way, and that is that through, we talked about symbiotic relationships and the way that organisms associate with one another earlier. That happens uh, with crops and soil organisms, that happens with animals and their gut microbiome. And these are cases where plants and animals are not so much taking up things as the communication and the relationship with other life spurs the biology inherent to a plant or an animal to, as Dave mentioned, make phytochemicals. In the case of yeah. an animal, it's it's there's all of these feedbacks between you know a, a, a cow with its um, rumen microbiome. 
So it's it's sort of twofold in that way. There's sort of direct assimilation, and then there's, I guess, for lack of a better word, sort of behavioral relationships and interactions that are then suffusing and imbuing crops and animals with the nutrients that keep them healthy, because that's sort of the objective there. And then yeah. we, we reap the benefits of that sort of at the end of the road, right? These crops and animals become foods in the human diet. So that's sort of how I like to think about it. And that the fab four, again, these micronutrients, phytochemicals, a balance of fats, and the microbial metabolites, you put that package together and those two major pathways. And that's really what we want our farm practices um, to be enhancing and enabling in our crops and in our animal production. Yeah, I mean, you're, you're basically saying, you know, we need to stop putting Band-Aids on, on these, trying to fix these problems. Let's find out what the problems are and attack it at that, at that source of, of, of where the problem is, you know, like the medicine with, with the humans. I mean, you go to a doctor and, and you, you, you go in and you, you explain to him, well, here, I'm going to write you out a prescription for something. No, what's wrong? What's wrong with me? Why am I the way I am? You know, and that's kind of the mentality we got to get off of. And, and we're, you're describing that same thing with the soil. I mean, the way the, the human gut and the, the soil microbial biome are so closely together, it's unbelievable how, how intertwined we are. Yeah, right, right. And I think that's, that's, a, that's another point. The more that we decouple ourselves from the condition of the land and what we do to the land, the more, yeah. we, the more we decouple um, just what it is that's, that's profoundly important for human health. Yeah. You know, yeah. and like we ended our talk, you know, if it's good for the land, chances are it's good for yeah. us. Exactly. Well, guys, this has been awesome. It's been an hour and a half. Thank you so much. We've had, we've got so many, you know, Claudia, she's on almost every time. How you doing, Claudia? Thank you, David and Anne. Looking forward to reading your books and your, your insight tonight. You are a wonderful couple and this was very informative. God bless. So, We've got so many good, and Deanna says the same thing. We've got so many great listeners out there. Guys, you know, again, the hidden half of nature is what really got me sparked to find out more about the microbial biome and just what is happening below our feet. And I know you've, you've instilled these same thought process processes in thousands of other people so thank you so much for for what you've done for this regenerative movement and bringing so many things to the surface that we can we can understand now what's happening and i can't wait for your next book so i got to get through this one though um what Don't worry, food, you got time what your food ate folks go out and get this one uh it's going to tie everything together of the the three books prior um, thank you. So let's have quick closing comments, if you would. This is another thing I like to do at the end. Uh, and take it, take us home, and then Dave, you're going to finally take us all the way home. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate the opportunity to to connect with you more, Rick, because I was really enjoying and appreciating your comments, you know, at the conference and. And when I hear people like you, and I got to talk, you know, I got to say again, that phytochemical talking cowboy, boy, <laughs> I just think, 
Where are the rest of them? I know they're out there in the I states and 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 other places. And so I I really hope that, you know, I have the opportunity to meet more people from within and I mean really within agriculture who are finding their way through what is a very sort of difficult um a difficult system that we have on our hands but i'm like look if these guys can do it yeah. then other people can yeah. do it too yeah. so i i just appreciate knowing that because you know there's nothing like if you lose hope or you think god there's nobody i had this farmer from this farmer from kentucky call me up not too long ago and she said you wouldn't believe everyone around me thinks i'm crazy i am so isolated and yet I know that what I'm doing is right. I know that taking care of the soil is the right thing, but it's awfully lonely sometimes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And so I really um, just wanna, you know, people who are listening already know you and know this stuff and they wouldn't be here if, if <laughs> they weren't getting something out of it. But I just wanna say good on you. Thank you, thank you very much. It was an honor for me to meet you as well, thank you. Well, I'd love, hey. let me echo what Andrew said, um, but and then elaborate on it to basically think that you know we're the the health and state of the soil is something that far too many people take simply for granted or don't think about it's kind of like the the secret crisis that's confronting humanity because we don't tend to talk about it but you know back when i wrote dirt really nobody was talking about it and now there's a whole regenerative agriculture movement and you know that's incredibly fast when you look at the sort of broad sweep of agricultural history we may be living through a new agricultural revolution as people rethink our relationship to the land. And this revolution may be based not so much on a technology or as it is on a philosophy, yeah. um, a philosophy of rebuilding soil health. And it's an exciting time. I think it would be an exciting time to be a farmer. I mean, exciting time to think about the land. Uh, and it's a really important time for the future of humanity because we yeah. have to make the transition to a more regenerative style of agriculture this century um, to avoid the problems that I wrote about in the dirt book. So, you know, thanks go out to everybody who's thinking about this, telling other people about it. Uh, you know, part of our job is to pull ideas together and write books and, you know, hopefully people will tell, tell other people about them and keep spreading the word. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, Hey guys, what's the, what's the website folks can come to and Rachel, if you would type the, type this in, please, Rachel, type it in for us. Okay, great. It is, uh, Big D I G the number two grow dot com. So that's dig to grow dot com. Yeah, and there you go. Some farmers have said, wait a minute, I thought we weren't supposed to dig. And then so as you know, writers <laughs> we have to say, Oh, what we mean is you're digging up here. Yeah. Okay? You're not yeah. digging below your feet. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there you go. We're digging up here. Nate, well, thank you so much for taking time out of your your busy schedule to to join me this evening and and all of our wonderful followers. Uh, This has really been a a treat because I I don't get to talk to folks that write great books like you've done very often, and it was was quite a pleasure to to do this. So thank you so much. Thanks, Rick. Pleasure's ours. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone have a great evening. Thank thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.